willkommen bei Sustain. Wer sind wir? Woher sind wir gekommen? Wohin gehen wir? That's right. Today we'll be talking in German because we are having our podcast at FOSS Backstage. FOSS Backstage is a wonderful conference that focuses on open source sustainability. It is held every year in Berlin. This year it happened on March 17th and 18th. It is hosted by the wonderful Plain Schwartz. And I had the opportunity of attending virtually and interviewing attendees who were there in person. We focused on software sustainability, what they hope to find in FOSS Backstage, and all the normal good stuff. So without any further ado, let's get to our guest. Florian, welcome. You are a Rust Langer. What do you say you do? I used to be a Rubyist. Now I'm a Rustation. So every programming language that starts with RU is great. As a rule of thumb, I used to run conferences and mainly my open source contribution is mainly on the organizational side. I am programmer by trade, but that's mainly my day job. And nowadays I have formed a business around the Rust programming language called Ferris Systems. Yep. And we do actually do open source maintenance, for example, through Open Collective. Awesome. So we're not only working through the classic model of, well, selling things to customers and then taking some of the shares to invest that in open source. We're working by a different model by the things we do open source. We also get community funded because that gives a much better and direct relationship. Okay. How do you get them community funded? Sorry, this is fascinating. How do you get them community funded? <laughs> well, we actually have two projects around that, two main projects. One is called Rust Analyzer, which is the IDE you usually use for Rust nowadays used to be a project that was outside of the Rust project. It is within the Rust project for a couple of weeks now. But one of the things we did two years ago, we said, if we're developing this IDE and we're assigning engineers to it, let's start a fund because this has broader use than to any one of our clients. This has such a broad use that it's hard to argue to any individual party, you should pay your share. So we'll just open this up and... The thing we give back is first, the delivery of the software, second, weekly reports on what we actually did, and also make sure that we use some of the funds to pay towards contributors that are outside of our organization. So we're kind of like handling this amount of money in trust and managing that. And took us a while to learn that, also how we do the public communication and all of this around that. But after three years, we're actually quite happy with that. Three years sounds like a short time to get all of that great learning involved. That's just amazing. This is really, really cool. I love how you started the fund. Are you using Open Collective for that? Make that fun work? Yes. Awesome. Okay, so that's a great story straight off the bat. So you were one of the founding members of the Rust Foundation, according to your yes. Twitter profile. That's really interesting. And it's interesting because what happens with foundations is that they're often founded by the BDSL right? The benevolent dictator for life. And there tends to be a foundation and then a for-profit company. You have a for-profit company, Faro Systems, which hypothetically helps employ you and make sure that you continue to have food and croissants. Not that those are different things. My question for you is, how did you plan that? Like, why didn't you plan on, say, Rust Foundation giving you money and the like? Like, how is it that you've also decided to build a, a separate company as well as being involved with open source? as opposed to just getting open source to pay you for everything. Okay. There's a little bit of history here. I mean, the Rust project, as everyone knows, was started in Mozilla. Yep. And so for a long time, the corporate entity that held the trademark and all of that just was Mozilla. And 
without going too much into details here, for example, things that a foundation would usually provide, like, for example, legal services, the trademark registration, and also a lot of infrastructure was yeah. provided by Mozilla, both in kind and also by their standards, which I have to say has been a very good experience in having a very secure and well-maintained project, also policy-wise very early. So for example, in my time as a core team member, I never had any kind of access to critical infrastructure because I'm not dealing with critical infrastructure and just having those policies in place right off the bat has been usually helpful. Nice. Because that's the nice thing when you come out of an organization that has a 20 years track record, they can robo stamp such policies onto a new project, essentially, without much of an effort. So I've been starting to do Rust services to my older business called Ascara in 2015 and started to train Rust. And so this is where this branch of I'm going to be active as an entrepreneur in Rust. And in 2018, we started our systems as there needs to be a service provider mm. for companies that want to adopt Rust that helps them with professional services. Mm. But in a new programming language, intention, you can have as much intention as you want to. You are not sure where this is going, if this is actually successful, if it's going to be adopted. And the Rust Analyzer part comes from the programmer who programmed Rust Analyzer, used to be an employee at Ferris Systems and has at some point thought about the future of this project and said, well, can we form a governance around that? And then I give like, let's have the funding for this project happen within first systems because it was around. So whenever we do any kind of calls around this amount of money that goes to Rust Analyzer, there's always also external people involved. Mechanically, it works even by Rust Analyzer has a separate bank account just to make sure that if someone is asking yeah. us, like, what are you doing with the money? Just the ability to say, okay, let's go to a bookkeeping system. <laughs> yeah. This is actually all the money that came in and this is what we did with it. So that amount of bookkeeping is really important because like, that allows us to be transparent, to say, hey, this is basically, in this case, the community is our customer and the service is an open source project. The Rust Foundation came later. Mm. So the Rust Foundation is about a year old. So the Rust Foundation came out of the thing that Mozilla was downsizing and we're enacting a lot of things that were at the horizon anyways. At some point, the Rust project just needed to move out. Also, just for the reason there's so many other large players involved. There's Mozilla. Besides Mozilla, there's Amazon, Google, Microsoft. All of those have been yeah, heavily yeah, invested. Yeah. And then the Rust Foundation made sense as a party where all of those could meet. And Ferris Systems is also a member of the Rust Foundation. And so this is partially historical. And the other thing is, well... I'm not sure if that idea of the foundation around an ecosystem should do everything. So the goal of the Rust Foundation, when we created it, was support the Rust project proper. And as Rust Analyzer was not a part of the Rust project back then, the focus of the foundation is more, how do we make sure that all the infrastructure for building the Rust programming language that the teams are working well on all of this. And that's already a ton of work. Mm. It has a little bit less. And just to be clear, I'm not a board member since beginning of the year anymore. But the focus was, and I think that's unusual for those foundations more on, let's make sure that the maintainers can do good work and all the outreach is actually the job of the project. And the foundation's job is to boost that rather than kicking off new initiatives of that kind, mm. at least currently. I don't want to say 
like I'm not part of it anymore, so I have no claim on future endeavors yeah, 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 or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. But just making sure that the software delivery of the Rust compiler stays sound, safe, and yeah, that every six weeks sees a release is already a big chunk of work. And that's also where I see the role of Ferris Systems more in like doing more active things towards the industry and also being a bit of a shield for these kinds of less structured designs. I like that. I kind of brought that up and I wanted to know because I, I recently talked to Dries with Ferris from Acquia and Drupal about the Drupal Acquia split and how that works. And I've also been noticing that the PHP foundations have found it. Eba just left the PSF and the PSF is off, you know, for Python. There's like, seems to be a proliferation of foundations for languages or frameworks and how those work has always been very interesting to me, particularly when there's a lot of collocation with people who also have industry companies. And so it's just very interesting to me to see your particular setup and how it works. I'm also trying to fit a lot of content into a very short time. So thank you for talking fast like I do. One of my questions for you, I think, given all this, is do you see more foundations working well with companies that are service providers as a viable means of actually making open source projects sustainable in the future? I think yes. First of all, open source projects are becoming much more industry friendly. And I think that also shows in the policies of the foundations. So for example, the Rust Foundation does buy services from other companies, for example, things like OnCall for Crates.io or their marketing and all of these kind of things. One thing that I find the foundation very useful for is First Systems is not the only company in the Rust ecosystem. It's the one that's sharply focused on services around the programming language. But for example, there's Twitter Golf in the Netherlands who are building embedded software around that. There's a number of companies. And one of the things that these foundations can do is also towards companies or industry players or even governments that want to identify, okay, so Rust, who's even active in it? Um, <laughs> That's already a major chunk of work that a foundation can do, like making these kinds of highlights. So if you look at the Rust Foundation's sponsor page, there's not only like the large ones. I think there's like 30 silver sponsors now. And this is especially interesting because in Europe, it's unusual to sponsor something like 300,000 towards a foundation, which the silver memberships often cost. But there's a lot of companies that are willing to pay the silver membership and get represented as a group instead by voting for a member. So this kind of visibility that, again, for example, with my position is like, why would I, as someone who's busy promoting their own company, actively promote all the 30 others? And that's something where I think a 501c6, which is quite literally an industrial foundation task to representing a companies with common interests. I think that's a very good role. And I think that also shows a maturity in the ecosystem that we now go and use common industrial practice for these kind of things. I know a lot of people think this is a little bit boring, (laughs) but I think there's enough mechanisms around on how this kind of collaboration works. And 501c6s are, in my opinion, an appropriate way to go. It's interesting that you say that. I mean, obviously, 501c6 is a American designation, more American trade foundation. It's not necessarily the same as GmbH or something. Similar in Germany, I don't know what it would be over there. But it's interesting to me that it is a good way to go. Open Source Collective is one. I know of others as well. But having a trade negotiation and being able to actually sponsor other communities does seem to be more communitarian and more open source approach. 
And I love that you pointed out that makes it easier for people who want to know who's involved with the project to know who is there. That's a flip side of sovereignty. I hadn't thought about it enough. So I want to thank you so much for that. Florian Gilcha, you are available on Twitter at Argorak. That's A-R-G-O-R-A-K. You can also find on Twitter links to Pharaoh Systems and Russ Lang and the Russ Foundation. You have a website at Yak Shaves. That's yakshab.es. No, this was great. I really appreciated it. This was a wonderful conversation, even though it was short. It was sweet. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Salona Bonewalls, you, I believe, run the... Uh, well, you could tell me your official title at IEEE. Can you tell me what it is? Yes, I'm the executive director of IEEE SA Open. SA Open, that's right. Yeah. Can you give me the 30 second to 90 second elevator pitch for what SA Open is for those listening who don't know what it is? Sure. So it started out as being the open source support for IEEE SA standards, SA standing for standards. And what we do is we have a platform where people can easily come in and put any type of artifact or resource or things of that nature to help support their standards that are open source. But then after we started doing it, we realized we had something larger to do. And so we're expanding the scope of it to all of IEEE as well as the public. And we're working a lot to raise the maturity level of open source. And so taking all the kind of knowledge and work that IEEE does to do things like the standard for running a nuclear power plant or 802.11 with Wi-Fi and things of that nature, how do we bring that level of maturity to open source as well? Because we want our stuff to be there for a really long time. And so we've made a lot of architectural decisions based upon that, is that whole sustainability for Right now on our publishing portion on Explore, we have like almost, not quite, but close to 6 million papers that have been published, including Nikolai Tesla's papers from like 130 years ago. And so when they say sustainability, honey, we mean sustainability. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for that. IEEE is a huge, huge network. You have almost 500,000 members, 423 according to Wikipedia, 160 countries. Obviously, over 100 years worth of publishing data and standards, which is really exciting. (laughs) One of the questions I have for you is, and I know we've talked about this before, you've been on the Sustain podcast at least once, which is really great. Listeners can go check that out at podcast.sustainoss.org. One of the questions I have for you is, for guests who are naive, how do standards interface with open source? Like what does it mean to have an open source standard and where are these standards being applied? So there's a lot of different levels of that that go on at IEEE. The first thing that we were trying to do is support a standard with open source artifacts and normative references and data and things of that nature. And so we were first focusing in on that. But then we realized we needed some more integration than that. And then also wanted to open things up to the public at large, as well as IEEE at large. And so we're doing other different things in regards to that. And it's kind of funny in that, like right now, there's a new study group that's being done. So IEEE standards take a while. They're not done really quickly for obvious reasons. And so that's going to be a little bit of a culture clash with some of the open source people. But we're working on one that's called open source software project governance, which is going to be more of a best practices. And what's happening is that's all being developed over on the standard side 
And we've created a really good group of initial people who are participating. So it's not, it's not just corporate entities. In fact, there's not a huge amount of corporate entities. It's a lot of other foundations like the Eclipse Foundation or the Linux Foundation, and then other standards organizations like Oasis and open source projects and like Red Hat and then a whole bunch of other different groups. And it's all done this time as an individual, not as an entity, mm-hmm. which means all these people come in representing themselves yeah. in regards to this. And so it's all very focused on things of that nature. And we've got some really amazing people like Vicky Brasseur, who does FOSS governance, yep. Karsten Wade, who did the open source way 2.0, all of these different groups. It's like, can we just like, congregate all in one area and like get all this stuff where we can have like a centralized reference where there's no undue influence in regards to it and talk about all of the shoulds rather than the shalls and get all that organized first. And so we're doing that while at the same time on the platform itself, we started doing some of that research as well because we were trying to figure out how did we want to govern ourselves as well. Mm. And we're integrating that right now into the normal IEEE essay governance, which is like a whole other kitten caboodle because IEEE being a 501c3 and not a c6 is governed by its volunteers and its members. And so there's a lot of steps, which is one reason things sometimes take a bit long because like, okay, first go get approved by that committee. Now go get approved by that committee. Now go. And they might have like meetings once a month. So it's like, dun, 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 dun. So you finally get all of your approval four months in or things of that nature. So it's a little hard for me sometimes to run that slow, but (laughs) you know, it's also safer and it's also less due to other types of influence and manipulations and things of that nature. So we work within those constructs. I wouldn't worry about it that much. I mean, open source itself has been around for 20 odd years now as a concept. Right. And a lot of people, when thinking about open source, think about the OSI and the OSI hasn't really updated its terms in 10 years. They also move very, very slowly. So <laughs> like the further you get from commits, the slower things are, which is, I think, OK. One of the questions I have about this awesome governance group, I know Stephen Wally is in it as well. I think yes, yes. Chair, he's the chair, yeah. which is great. Mm-hmm. He's an awesome person for open source in general. Governance is ridiculously hard for open source projects in general. Right. Most open source projects start from having probably one or two people who sort of run the whole thing and then maybe their company's involved if they're coming from a company or not. And then it's very hard to implement, well, how do we have working groups? How do we have reporting? How do we have the benevolent dictator for life step down? All these different Mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. I want to know what's your dream for 10 years from now for the output of this governance group? I would like to see things that are done more in a nonprofit style fashion Mm. where you do, again, have it, you know, where you expand the scope. So, you know, one thing that I talk a lot about is role diversity. And the reason for that is because I sit there and I see all these other people who participate being underrepresented in a lot of these different arenas. Because like you said, way too often the common perception of open source is developers writing code for developers. And they've been pretty successful at that, you know, Linux and Kubernetes and Apache and things of that nature. But when it comes to like nonprofits, academia, governments, all these other groups that are venturing into the space, it falls horribly short, mostly because of this whole dynamic of thinking that developers know what's best. We already know in business models, that's not often true (laughs) in regards to the users. 
And so we have to bring some of that into the picture a little bit more. And not to mention this whole idea of the renegade person who runs out there and writes this fabulous code. We're finding that, once again, not as sustainable, right? Blog4j, some of the other JS libraries, all that kind of stuff that's going on where it's way too dependent on one person or a small group of people. And so we want to take it out of that. And the thing is, is once you want to chase money and resources, which you will need for that level of sustainability, you have to start considering all of those different factors in regards to it. And so that's one reason why we're looking at a lot of that. And that's one reason why we did a platform is because we wanted to really start to figure out how we could crack the metrics Mm. on a lot of that. You know, and Amanda Kasari has been doing a lot of work with that over at Google and Ocean with Vermont and going through and looking at those and Heath over at Dial and the gals that just gave a presentation here for the prototype fund with Germany. What are those qualifications for when you do give money and what does that look like and how do we do that? how do we do those funding models? And we're tackling that at IEEE as well. We have the IEEE Foundation and we actually just finished up our first one where, you know, we had some money come in, we went out and we did the thing for it. And now we're doing the reimbursement process. And it was hard and involved and a lot of stuff had to be taken care of and done paperwork wise and new contracts had to be written and la, 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 la. And so, you know, we're getting there. And I think that's what's going to have to happen for that sustainability is we are going to have to figure out what are those models going to look like so that we're not all eating ramen and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all of the time. I like ramen. I like ramen. Just saying, if it's made right, it's okay. Yes. In Austin, we have ramen sets. So yeah, that's amazing. But it's also not four for $1. <laughs> I, I feel you. I feel you. Um, the prototype fund is fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's really amazing work. I think Catherine Meyer is one of the people behind that. I'm blanking on all of their names. There's a wonderful team there. Speaking of Foss Backstage, which is obviously where you are right now in sunny Berlin for once. Weird. Yes. I, very strange. I want to talk a tiny bit, if you don't mind, about your talk. So you're giving a talk called It Takes a Village, where you talk about diversity and you talk about what it it means to actually grow open source. Can you share a bit with us about what the main brunt of that is and how that's relevant to this? The main brunt of it is basically considering IEEE and its reputation, right? It's known for being trustworthy. It's known for being safe. It's known for doing all of these other different aspects. And so when we sat there and started looking at the platform and not only that, but I was, you know, fresh from doing inner sourcing at PayPal and then Hyperledger at the Linux Foundation, And not only that, but as you know, I've been involved in open source for a really long time. And it's always been like this weird relationship with a lot of the open source stuff, because really I was a C and C++ coder and some Java and some other languages I don't want to admit to. But, you know, in 2004 is really when I stopped being a real coder, in my opinion. Now, I still did websites and some scripts and things of that nature, but it's not real coding. It's not creating objects and doing these massive back-end systems for massively multiplayer online game worlds. And it became funny because as a woman, I suddenly became what I didn't want to be, which was marketing and the event organizer and all of these other different social things that I'd never perceived myself as being previously. And as some of y'all, well, as some of y'all know, I'm still sometimes inept, right? And that, you know, I'm often told I'm too blunt and I'm too aggressive and I'm too all of those different things, Uh, whatever. But in the open source realm, it became a funny dichotomy in that I was not seen as a core 
person, even though I did all of these core contributions. And so I was like, I really want to bring in that diversity into this. And IEEE ends up being a perfect place for that because it's not normally thought of as an open source place, right? They're electrical engineers, they're chemical engineers, they're all these engineers. And to me, we don't get to get to open data and open hardware and things of that nature until we start including those communities and we start including those people. And then we can get to open research and open publishing. And so with that brought the role diversity. And so they're saying, okay, here's all the different groups. And so the talk is basically about some of the structures that we created to create that role diversity by creating these different advisory groups. And the advisory groups are now creating, you know, different ways of handling that. My favorite example that I like to talk about is under the community advisory group, we have an education subgroup, which is a special interest group. They did an evaluation of the platform and they also did evaluation of a bunch of other open source tools that are not currently on the platform and then went to the technical advisory group and went through their submittal process for asking for new features and new tools and both did the process as well as gave them feedback on their process as well. And that's the kind of thing that I think open source needs to evolve to is what are your processes for deciding the new features? You know, how do you make those more community oriented and how do you make those more friendly towards the users themselves? And then with the marketing group, they were kind of like, oh, and here's some ways that we can get the information out about this too. And how can we support that too? And so that's kind of how those different, the role diversity fit fits in. And so I talk about a lot of both the constructs and the actual processes that they've created and some of the work that they've done. So I realize I may have not asked this question before, and I'm interested in your answer to it. Let's say I'm interested in starting a new project, either at my company, let's say actually Open Source Collective, which is where I'm currently working. Mm-hmm. How do I use the IEEE platform? How do I sign up? It's really easy. You go to saopen.ieee.org and sit there and follow the sign up process on there which isn't as easy as it should be because of secure login and blah, blah, blah. But do that. It's actually free. I know it doesn't look like it's free, but it is, I swear. Just ignore the other different aspects of that. Sign up, get an IEEE account, and then you can go on and start creating what you need. And so it already has it set up where you have CICD, you have websites, you have Mattermost where you can set up your own team and channels and all of that kind of stuff. And it's already there. So you can get in there and get started. Awesome. What's the adoption been like so far? So we have about a thousand users and about, I don't know, somewhere close to 300 projects at this point, but there hasn't been a huge push yet. I'm hoping that's going to change this year because I want to start doing a series of codathons worldwide to cool. bring a lot of those in. Yeah. I mean, because like with IEEE, basically, if you have an engineering school, you probably have an IEEE chapter. So we have tens of thousands of universities on our call list. And so to me, it just seems like a natural thing to do if they're saying, hey, you want to do these codathons for these different things. Why don't you come over here and work with us on them? And so we're going to be doing that. I like that idea. It sounds to me like a mixture of GitHub's OSPO and Major League Hacking coming together or, or something different. It's, <laughs> you know, let's figure out how we can get all the university students, all the postgrads, all the professors. I mean, the best thing for me about IEEE, I think, is that it's so authoritative. I've never seen it used lightly. No one said, yeah, I'll release paper, not triple E, whatever. Like, it's always like, no, that's the thing we do. Um, yes, there's so a I, lot of process involved. And that, that's definitely true. But the problem is, is that happens is you watch it, that people do all these codathons and hackathons and they never go anywhere, which is really frustrating. 
as the founder of the Codathon back in, you know, 2004. And it's frustrating to me to watch these things die. And I think it's because like a lot of times they're way too haphazard about doing it. So we're going to be doing a little bit more Salona style, which I believe is a little bit more IEEE style where we're going through this entire process. And it's kind of funny in that it ends up being sort of like Google Summer of Code, except for I'm trying to make it more inclusive instead of exclusive. Because with Google Summer of Code, you have to go through all these application processes and do this and do this and do this. It ends up being a lot of work and a lot of people get told no. And so it's kind of like, "Eh, I don't really want to do that because that wouldn't be good for me, honestly, at IEEE. And so instead it's like, how do we make all this very public with all the matchmaking. If you don't do a good enough job, well, then you don't get any volunteers and set something up along those lines. And so that's what we're looking at is how do we actually do a more inclusive approach? And so there'll be a lot of prep before the event happens. Let's just put it that way, where they'll be pairing up with the nonprofits, they'll be working with the designer, they'll be getting everything scoped up and written down. And then you start doing the code and you start doing all those different pieces. But before then you actually do a fair amount of work ahead of time so that you can correctly make sure that you fulfill the nonprofit's needs. I like that. I like that. Can you talk to me a bit about funding? How easy is it for projects on IEEE SA Open to get funding for their projects? Or are you helping them do that? Like, how do we sustainably help every project be able to continue to work fiscal manner? So that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out right now. One of the things that happens with IEEE is, once again, 501c3, yada, yada. With our foundation, we only offer resources, not cash. And so there's a bunch of different things that we're doing in regards to those where it's like, we can hire people for you to help you with each of the different things. We can give you some additional resources like security audits or things of that nature, or even, you know, help pay for your marketing or different things along those lines. And so we're doing that first. And right now I have to admit, we're a little bit exclusive in regards to that where we start at $50,000 and then we're going up from there. And so we're trying to land larger deals in regards to that because of the fact that our foundation takes so little overhead. It's something like three or 4% that we only try to at first broker the larger ones. I know Josh Gay has some other plans, hopefully in the future where he can do the smaller ones, but we have to set up a lot of infrastructure before that's going to actually happen so that we can get to that automation process for it. But that's what we've got right now. And like I said, we did our first one, which is where some money came in. And then we set up a version of the platform for them and brought code over and helped them do their deployments of their new open source code base. Love it. Talk to me a bit about collaboration. So I know you've been around for ages and everyone knows you, which is the best. For those of you who don't know Salona, I really hope that you're enjoying (laughs) this conversation. One of the things I'm curious about is IEEE, for instance, you mentioned the governance group is working with these amazing people, Vicky, Stephen Wally, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about over the next year or two, what collaborations are really going to make it better for people who use the platform? What are you looking into? What are you excited about? Well, I'm excited about bringing more people into the advisory groups because I feel like the advisory groups are doing a lot of really good basic work on the platform itself to make it, you know, more friendly and as open as possible. And so I'm hoping to see a lot more happening with that and recruiting different people for that. And then also watching the tool itself evolve with the codathons, where we can get more and more to my ideal, which is the codathon in a box where it's like, okay, you go in, you sign up, you create all the stuff, boom, 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 all the stuff goes there. And you don't really have to run around looking for things or making sure that things work or any of that. It's just there. And so I'm hoping that all of that can be as 
as extremely collaborative as we would like it to be. Because one of the things that we're doing is we're talking to all of these other open source projects that already exist. I see no reason to reinvent the wheel. And instead going through and speaking with each of those other different groups going, okay, we want to use your stuff. How do we use it? What do we do here? Et cetera, Ignosium. And so we're doing things like that with GitLab and Mattermost. And Big Blue Button is its own open source community. So there's no corporation to go and talk to. But we are trying to figure out how do we do each of those different collaborations? And also, how do we cross collaborate? Because one of the things we're doing with this platform is we're being you know 100% open source. And so that means we're working on releasing our infrastructure as code as open source, for example, so that you can go through and install these things and get them going on the cloud. And then we're also working on our members going through and changing those things and having those features. And how do we make sure that those features not only are on our instance, but we also help them guide through like GitLab or Mattermost. And then also, you know, any of the interoperability tools that they create, making sure that those get open. And so there's a lot of collaborations that we hope to start having with that both upstream and across stream. So if someone else uses the platform and they add some new tools in, great. How do we work with them and make sure that it also gets across all the versions of the platform? So I view it as almost three directions up to like GitLab, down to like the new features that we create and then across ways for anyone else who also wants to use the platform. Salona, I love it. Thank you so much. For those guests who don't know, Salona is accessible on Twitter at Salona, that's S-I-L-O-N-A, also Salona.org. But you want to check out IEEE um, open, go to HTTPS colon slash slash, those are forward slashes, those of you don't know, S-A-Open.IEEE, that's three E's, dot org. Always good chatting with you. Can't wait to see in the real world again. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that. Once again, this has been a Sustain slash FOSS backstage interview. If you're interested in talking more about these subjects, you can always check us out on Discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. That is our website. We have a whole forum. We're just waiting to hear from you. We're also curious about your thoughts in general. So feel free to send us an email at podcast at sustainoss.org or on Twitter at sustainoss. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you take care. 